0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today.
1: Okay, we got a tough subject for you for the next patch of this conference. Um, So we're going to do our best to have a good discussion about homelessness and about what you folks can all do about this. Visible and hidden homelessness. There are growing concerns in rural Ontario. And here to discuss those issues, along with how mental health and addictions are manifesting across the province, we're going to welcome Justin Marchand, who is the CEO of Ontario Aboriginal Housing Services. Catherine Hardman, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Huron Perth. Henry Wall, Chief Administrative Officer of the Kenora District Services Board. Kellyanne Salerno, Assistant Director of Housing Administration and Operations in the region of Waterloo. And Terry Lee Kelford, Co-Chair of the National Alliance to End Rural and Remote Homelessness. She's also a registered psychotherapist and would you welcome them here to the stage this morning. Great to see everybody. Okay. Uh, Terry I'm going to start with you. We've got an image of homelessness in the big cities that I think we all understand, but I want a better understanding of what it looks like in rural Ontario. Fill in the blanks if you would.
2: Right, I think in rural communities for a long time, uh, homelessness has been seen as a hidden issue, and it, and it really is um, for a variety of reasons, though not not simply because it's couch surfing, which is often the misconception I think. But um, homelessness in rural communities uh, is hidden because uh, we often uh, send people to the cities, or people go to the cities to access services, or thinking there's going to be services for them. Um, certainly, I started a coalition 25 years ago because the only solution we had to youth homelessness was to put them on buses and ship them to the city. So um, it's all. Also hidden because in rural communities there's no, more places to hide. Um, you don't see people sleeping on their streets but they'll be in the wooded area just off the outskirts of town, they'll be in cars, they'll be in campers, they'll be in trucks. Um, I would also argue that it's hidden because uh, we don't talk about it enough in provincial and federal policy. Uh, We have too many programs that are geared towards urban centers and not enough towards uh, rural communities. We have dedicated capital streams. We have reaching home designated community funding. We have programs in Ontario like uh, strong mayor programs that are all geared towards urban centers without acknowledging the significant issue that we have in rural and small communities.
1: Henry, what does it look like in northwestern Ontario?
3: And I think I'd I'd like to build on that. we do a really good job at sending people away. Uh, In in the far north, if you're in a community where your uh, diesel power generator can't support enough homes being added and overcrowding will push uh, families into more urban, rural centers and that creates capacity challenges. And as individuals struggle, I mean, the other piece too is that, I mean, on the the mental health and addiction side, we've done a good job, we've almost taken the industrial revolution model saying we, we need to have centers of excellence in large urban centers and then we send people to urban centers to get help. And that does not work. And so I think we've, as communities, and in, in, in part there, there's a hiddenness to it. If you're a community with no shelter, people are probably couch surfing or being sent away, or if people need help, we send them away. And so this is where it, that disconnection certainly adds additional factors to it. And I think the other piece too is that um, we've collectively, federal, provincial, and, and municipal municipalities, to some extent. Uh, part of the reason I think we're all up here is the fact that we haven't built housing. We stopped, for some reason, in the 1970s, 1980s, we stopped building community housing. And that... When you say we, who's the we? Collectively. I think, in part, it's... We're debating which government's responsible for it, at which level. And I think it's, 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 an, it's an all approach to it. And so we start looking at, when did we stop? Well, that's when we started talking about homelessness, you know, maybe a decade or so afterwards. And so I think in part the reason we're here is we don't have enough homes. And that's what we're talking about homelessness in rural communities. And, and the lack of housing is not an urban center, large urban center phenomenon. It exists in, 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 in rural communities just as much.
1: Well, let's see what it looks like in southwestern Ontario. Catherine, what would you add?
4: I would say that I think that it's not as hidden as it used to be uh, we are seeing people sleeping on our streets we are seeing people you know with shopping carts all the things that people thought only happened in larger urban areas we're starting to see in, in smaller communities and it's really unsettling to people to see that so I don't think it is as hidden as it used to be um, you know with people sleeping in you know bank festivals and certainly they're still in the wooded areas and and such but I certainly agree that the resources have not gone to the rural areas in the same way that they have uh, to the urban, the larger urban areas. And of course, mental health and addictions is my specialty. And so I agree with you 100% like we're not. We do need more. um, We need consistent services across all communities uh, so that we don't have to send people out of our community to go for treatment uh, and for higher levels of, of care.
1: Justin, I don't think I have to tell anybody in this room that indigenous people are disproportionately represented among the group we're talking about here today. What does it look like in your world?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, indigenous people are 11 times more likely to experience homelessness than the rest of the population. So that's that's not a, a, a small figure by any means. Um, in addition to what was mentioned, uh, homelessness also manifests itself in our healthcare system. So we have doctors and nurses who who take people in um, in the emergency room and, and check them in in the middle of winter because it's cold outside and so you have, uh, you know, What uh, might be a little bit of a derogatory uh, word, but you have bed blockers in, in our hospitals and we're using expensive healthcare services to try to address homelessness, which just really doesn't make sense from a financial perspective or a human perspective. But that's another place where it manifests itself in rural Ontario.
1: Kellyanne, we've heard a couple of references already to the solution to homelessness in rural Ontario is to send them to the cities. (laughs) Is that consistent with what you see on the ground in Waterloo?
5: Um, Yeah, certainly I think there is a perspective of that. And, And building on what my colleague said, I mean, from the hidden homelessness perspective, for rural, we are seeing people come out of the woodwork. We are seeing people more and more being unsheltered. You speak to the outreach teams on the street working in the rural areas, and they're absolutely saying that the unsheltered population is now, you know, you will find them in encampments, single encampments, three, four tents, they are starting to congregate in that community setting because they need the support of that. They're on, you know, The encampments need the support of the residents living in there, and that's the approach that they're taking. So we are absolutely seeing it across the board in the cities um, and not just in the rural areas. I mean, encampments uh, have always been around, but I would say since 2020, we are really seeing that unsheltered population grow. Uh, chronic homelessness across the board is growing by 28%. Um, year after year.
1: You said 2020. That's a COVID year. Did COVID have a lot to do with this? Absolutely. Like what?
5: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, as a municipality, and I guess, you know, from Canada's perspective, we were forced to deal with the issue. People came out of the woodwork and said, I need a place to go. And from the health perspective, we wanted to keep people safe. And we found the spaces to do that. And we had the funding to do that. And we have since seen uh, funding from those levels of government disappear. And municipalities are now having to continue those services that we offered during COVID um, on the tax levy. And, and, that's, and that's difficult.
1: Terry Lee. Mm-hmm. Terry Lee, we have an impression, and you can tell me if it's right or wrong, that the vast majority of people dealing with homelessness have mental health or addiction issues. Is that the case?
2: Mm. Uh, Well, I work with youth, and uh, I'll wear my psychotherapy hat as well, and when I get asked when I speak publicly uh, about uh, mental health and addiction specifically, um, you know, how many youth would uh, have addictions and would that cause them to become homeless? And often my answer is a lot of the young people we work with, we support about 70 or 80. If I wear my other hat as being chair of a nonprofit in Leonard County that supports youth. vast majority of them would not qualify for an addictions. Um, but if uh, we leave them homeless, they're going to be at higher risk of addictions. And so, again, if we want to go upstream, if we want to work on prevention issues, then we need to get people fast and we need to get them housed and we need to prevent um, ongoing uh, traumas that people experience while homeless, uh, risks of addictions. Um, so I would argue that, yes, there is a mental health component and an addictions issue that's associated with homelessness. But, again, if we want to prevent homelessness, then, you know, we're also going to prevent a lot of mental health.
1: Henry, how about for you? How much of this is a story of, at the end of the day about mental health and addiction issues? Um,
3: I, I think in part. And we were starting to use homelessness, addictions, and mental health almost like they're all the same term. And I think that, that is actually a great error we're doing. Um, I think in terms of if we're serious about addressing homelessness, we, we need to be specific. If, if you're a youth in an overcrowded home and your family's worried that child and family service are going to get involved, that stress will lead to mental health challenges. Um, if you don't know where the next meal is going to come from, that's going to manifest itself. And so I think in part, it's, yes, there's, there's an element to addiction and homelessness that's, ca- that's causing the loss of housing or for the inability to attain housing. But I think quite often what we're seeing, it's actually the lack of having a home that is now driving uh, somebody getting now entering into an addiction. Uh, being in a state of hopelessness for young people, is a sure way to either end, end up with struggling with addictions and, and with mental health. And so I think this is where, in terms of the topic of homelessness, we do be quite specific. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's what I'd like to add to that.
1: Okay. Catherine, everybody understands homelessness when they see a tent city in the middle mm-hmm. of a downtown. Right. But we are now hearing more about something called hidden homelessness. Yes. Would you tell us what that is?
4: So I would say that's uh, when we have people like women in women's shelters. Uh, We have people, uh, we uh, house people in hotels that are homeless. Uh, We have people in transitional housing so they're still homeless. They're not Housed, they don't have a home of their own, Um, and so people people think because they have a roof over their head that they they, they're housed and they're not homeless. Um, So I think our numbers get very skewed because of that because people think people are housed, but um, there's lots of ways that they're homeless. So their couch surfing has has already been mentioned, uh, staying with friends or family, but they don't actually have a home of their own.
1: Leanne, hidden homelessness. What does it look like in your neck of the woods?
4: Um, In 2021, we did our last point-in-time
5: count for the region of Waterloo, and we were looking at over 1,100 people experiencing homelessness, and of those 1,100 people, approximately 350 were living um, with hidden homelessness. And so another 450 were living unsheltered on the street in encampments. So definitely, the region of Waterloo is experiencing the same challenges as my colleagues are. Um, and affordability is hard for everybody. So in terms of a you know a family breakdown, if we're if family or friends are taking in people that have you know fell on hard times, uh, lost their job can't afford their rent, it's hard for those families and friends, too, to support the people that they're trying to support as well. So we are seeing it um, all over the place, and people are turning to the street because they have no other choices. Lack of affordability, lack of units and stock. Um, It is the challenges that we're seeing in Waterloo.
1: So, Terry Lee, if you're couch surfing, and then you have one of those awkward conversations that Kellyanne just referred to where somebody says, "Okay, that's it. Time's up, you gotta go. What happens then?
2: well again I think to, to build on my earlier response um, you know again lots of rural, I'd like to think that our rural communities are not sending people to cities any longer but that, that's still happening I think people are concerned about people sleeping outside so they say you can't stay here you got to go so certainly that migration piece to urban centers is something that's reflected in federal counts across the country as well so um, so in our community of Lander County if I speak just there we're now starting to see encampments and I think I'm hearing that right across the board across the country we're starting to see uh, encampments developing in small communities of or five, 6,000 people. So um, sleeping outside is not new to, to rural communities. Um, again, our, our nonprofit in Leonard County started uh, because a gentleman died of exposure outside in the town of Perth about 15 years ago. So this is not a new issue. Sleeping outside is not a new issue. You just don't see it the same way.
1: Not a new issue, but Justin, I wonder if there's something different about homelessness or hidden homelessness, particularly among Indigenous people, post-COVID.
0: Is it different over the last few years? I think it's a little bit different in that uh, it's become more of a mainstream issue right now um, uh, our communities have always um, really since uh, since contacts started to have to deal with homelessness and it's not that uh, misery loves company or that uh, but it's you know we're unfortunately fortunately talking about this right now um, we've been talking about this for for decades and um, it's finally getting the the attention that it deserves. Uh, I'll give an example in uh, in uh, the community where I live in Sault ste marie or Bawa Um We went from uh, from the mainstream service manager doing a a, a pit count um, solely within their or, own organization, uh, and you know there was a count of about a, a, call it a call it a hundred people for round numbers that were experiencing homelessness. We asked to be included in that point in time count the next time around. And uh, lo and behold, uh, that number almost doubled. And that's the official counted number. There was, never, there was always more than 100 people experiencing homelessness. There's still probably more than 200. But when you include Indigenous communities, Indigenous service organizations in your delivery, you're more apt to get a truer picture of what's actually going on in your community.
1: Henry, what about it? Post-COVID, does it look different now?
3: It does to, to an extent. Um, now, in, in part, so I'm, I'm from the district of Kenora, so homelessness hasn't been, been new. It's been around for, for many generations. And, um, and I would say what, during COVID, what did change is that as services were putting control measures in place in response to the pandemic, and um, I, I wonder if I can answer it this way, because in part, um, the, the jails, municipal jails, the Kenora jail, uh, the emergency departments have been part of our housing continuum in the north for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I think what happened during COVID is as those changes, as organizations were making changes, we saw an increased number of people being displaced into, onto the streets. And so that really intensified um, uh, the challenge. It also created opportunities to work in partnership, force partnerships to actually address it. And um, so I would say in terms of it's, intensified because we're still trying to recover as the health system is struggling that means there's even less services in our rural communities there were we had healing deserts if i can use that terminology uh beforehand it's even worse now and so i think that's in part we're finding we're building more homes but a housing first strategy is not a housing only strategy and i think that's where it's quite getting quite difficult post uh, post covid
1: Kellyanne, you look like you wanted to jump in there.
5: Yeah, I wanted to build on what my colleagues were saying. I mean, certainly from the chronic homelessness perspectives in Waterloo Region, 12% um, are identifying as Indigenous. And in our population, only 2% are Indigenous communities. Disproportionately, I mean, those are alarming. And when you talk about some of the solutions for Um, our indigenous partners and our communities and equity-seeking and deserving groups, you need purpose built for those communities. Uh, We uh, partnered with KW Urban Native Wigwam Project in the region of Waterloo for a 24-bed transitional uh, shelter. Amazing, operated by KW Urban Native. They designed the program. It wasn't about the region saying to them, this is what this standard should look like. It isn't one size fits all. If we are gonna solve this problem, it needs to be specific for communities. And one of the things we talk about in Waterloo, we started with the plan to end chronic homelessness. So in community, for community, by community. Um, We need to to listen to the lived experts and lived expertise to tell us what they need to help us solve this problem. And so just building on some of those pieces.
1: Justin, I should follow up with you on that. How much in your judgment of the disproportionate problem of homelessness in the indigenous world in this province is because there are many indigenous people for quite rational reasons who do not trust, and I don't know what to call it other than the sort of colonial-based institutional structure of the province, to have their back?
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, We're... We're starting to see the beginnings of change, but we've got a long ways to go. Uh, we keep trying to use mainstream solutions to solve indigenous homelessness, and it doesn't work. We've, we've tried mainstream solutions with respect to uh, residential schools. We've tried mainstream solutions with respect to child and family services. That doesn't work. We need a different, we need a different approach. Um, those resources in that area Um, still aren't aligned. They're very much misaligned. Uh, In Northern Ontario in particular, uh, over between 60 and 99% of the people experiencing homelessness are Indigenous, yet the Indigenous-specific funding is only 5%. So we've got a huge math problem.
1: Speaking of math, Henry, social assistance recipients, in the winter months, the numbers always go up. How come?
3: It's... Depending on, on your region, uh, it could be jobs during the summer, tourism, construction, and so forth. So there, there's uh, opportunity for employment. And, uh, and, those, and as those jobs change in, in, in the wintertime, there is an increase in number of people that will actually go on to, on to social assistance. And I think, you know, in, in part, so it almost becomes, becomes a bit of a norm, and it, it's quite interesting, up, up in our region, we have enough vacant jobs right now that every person on social assistance could, could have a job. And so there's a, there's a big disconnect. And in, and in part, if I could build on uh, my friend Justin was just speaking, in terms of our, our education piece and our health piece, we need to, we have so much to learn from our First Nation and Indigenous partners. We often think mainstream needs, needs to change, and it does. Uh, we're finding through the work that we're doing with all, through the All Nations Health Partners, mainstream programs should actually learn and listen and implement from our indigenous communities in terms of what actually works. Um, I know that doesn't quite answer that that question, but I just want to add to that is that it's not, there's so much, we just sometimes need to listen. And I think there's so much that we can can learn in terms of making change, in terms of what it means to be a caring community, an inclusive community. And that goes back to uh, social assistance. I think through that, um, you know, the conversation we're having around addiction and homelessness now, it makes employers nervous in a local communities to actually hire somebody who might be on social assistance or struggling with homelessness. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we're seeing and also an increase is that we need to bridge, help break some of those misunderstandings and barriers in terms of the support so that local employers don't feel adverse of hiring individuals who might be on social assistance.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Terry Lee, I suspect the people in this room know all too well what many of the issues are around getting supportive housing built, but let's make a bit of a checklist anyway. Mm -hmm. Because I keep hearing that if we could only get more supportive housing built, so much of this problem would go away. Maybe all this problem would go away. We'll talk about Finland in a second, where they made a decision to make this problem go away. Why is it not happening here?
2: I think there's a reluctance. Um, Ontario is one of the only provinces in the country where the housing portfolio, the province offloaded the housing portfolio to municipalities. And I think uh, municipalities, it's a daunting task to operate um, housing and to build more of it. Um, and so that's where your nonprofit partners come in. And there needs to be more partnerships there, I think, between nonprofits and and the provincial and federal governments um, to empower folks to build um, social housing. And I, al- I also get concerned, along with my colleagues, that when we see provincial and federal programs roll out without talking about home. Homelessness enough. The word homelessness needs to be in programs and policies because um, my concern as an advocate is that we're going to resolve affordable housing without resolving homelessness. Um, Again, for 25 years, we've had homelessness in this country and we allowed it to exist. This is not a new issue. This has been slowly building for 30 or 40 years in this country and a lot of people, all of us, um, sat back and watched it grow and now we, we, now we say it's a crisis um, to the point where we can't build housing fast enough. In fact, we're losing more affordable housing than we're building right now no matter how much money we put into it. So um, for all of those reasons, I think it's hard not to get discouraged right now, but we have to keep pushing forward and I just want to touch on social assistance rates. Mm-hmm. We need an equal... Uh, and passionate um, plea to increase social assistance rates in this country. Um, It's kind of like building more food banks to address food insecurity when we should be increasing people's income so they can afford to shop just like the rest of us. Okay, Um, let, let me.
1: I think everybody in this room remembers when the progressive conservative government in the 1990s decided to reduce social assistance rates by 21%. And we have seen since then several governments none of whom have chosen to put the rate back up to where it was. So I appreciate that you think that that's a solution, but so far no government of any stripe has restored the funding to what it was. What does that say? Uh,
2: Well, I think we're we're all guilty, all parties are guilty. All parties are guilty over the last 40 years of allowing housing to become a crisis. And so, um, and us as individuals as well. Um, So I think, you know, when it comes to social assistance, you know, I, let me wear my child welfare hat. I worked in the child welfare system for a long time, and I used to always say that um, systems make terrible families. And the same would apply to housing and, and, um, and food banks, again, if we want to talk about those programs. We're building this huge, massive machine to serve a social issue, and really we should be increasing people's income, people's access to jobs, and, uh, and housing is a human right. Um, so I'm not sure what that reluctance is, <laughs> but we need to get over it.
1: Catherine, I presume a a huge part Mm -hmm. of the solution to the problems that you deal with would be the creation of more supportive style housing. Why isn't it getting done?
4: I, well, I think it's the the will of you know the governments to fund that because you know we're talking about building affordable housing and absolutely that's needed. But we need the supports to those housing because people need that support to transition from homelessness often, and particularly if there are mental health and addiction issues. And I do want to say not everyone that's homeless has a mental health and or an addiction issue. Many do, um, and I, I agree completely with Henry when he says. Homelessness creates mental health issues and addiction issues. Um, sorry, I've gone off. But I think that um, we need to, and we need all levels of support. The reality is we need, some people need 24-7 support, um, and it's expensive, and I think it's just the will to put the money where it needs to be.
1: In fact, Justin, I've heard you say in the past that homelessness is a choice. It is a policy choice that successive governments have made. What do you mean by that?
0: It absolutely is a choice. In uh, 1991, the federal government decided to get out of the business of of housing, uh, of deeply affordable housing. And right now, um, don't take don't take our word for it. But you even have uh, the Scotia Bank calling out Canada to saying that uh, we're at the bottom of the G7 in terms of what we invest in social housing. And Scotia Bank is actually calling on the federal government to double the number of social housing units in this, in this country just to get to the G7 average. They're calling on Canada to double the number of social housing units from 220,000 to 440,000. Again, another math problem. Also at the federal level, uh, we saw at the start of the national housing strategy, CMHC said we're short two and a half million homes. Now, by 2030, they're projecting that we're actually going to be short close to four million homes in Canada. We've got some serious math problems that if we want to, without making a, a, a judgment on our immigration policy, but if we're going to welcome uh, or increase our population by a million uh, people per year in this country, we need to be built, building more than 200,000 homes. That's currently what the market's building. We need to build close to 500,000 homes. So affordable. the federal government has to has to align their immigration and their housing policy. They also have to... Uh, this, this sounds so um, not very, uh, it, it, this doesn't sound good, but it, it shouldn't make any of us proud that we're at the bottom of the G7 with respect to deeply affordable housing. And Scotiabank's just calling on Canada to be average. Like, since when do we live in a country that we're proud to be average? <laughs> like, we should set much higher goals than that. And so, yeah, we, we need that federal policy. Uh, changes, absolutely. Let's get reaction from Henry, then Kellyanne.
3: Yeah, and I think everybody in this room is going to appreciate it. I mean, uh, folks in this room are tasked with having official plans with community safety well-being plans, and I think those things are all really good. Those are, it's appropriate to be done at a local level. We have, I think, on the housing piece, on homelessness piece, we have some things that just need to be top-down. We need to have a government, federal government, that is actually interested in building homes.
1: You don't think this one is? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we need to look at rural communities. We need to look at the rapid housing initiatives the last three mm-hmm. rounds and see how much of that funding actually went to rural communities. And I think that, I think the numbers will speak for themselves. Uh, and and I, I keep saying, and this is, this is not, nothing against large urban centers, but we want to start addressing the housing crisis in large urban centers, start investing in rural communities. That, it's a, that simple. And I think also, um, there's only so much that municipalities can do we do need to have a provincial and federal government that are actually interested in being true partners in addressing the housing crisis. And it cannot be done through the local tax base. Um, and because if it could be, we would have seen homes continue to be built since the 1990s. And when you start looking at almost every single community that's represented in this room, when the federal government got out of the housing business, that's when community housing development stopped. And so I think with that is we just need, to, I think on the other pieces, Policies need to be aligned. And that right now, we're not seeing that. And I think until that is done, we're going to continue having us up here or other people talking about this challenge, but just the numbers will just get larger.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah.
5: Um, I almost want to say don't get me started on the social assistance rates. Um, but I started my career 33 years ago, and the social assistance rates look very similar to when I started. I mean, we are being comfortable keeping people in poverty. Social assistance rates and ODSP rates are keeping people in poverty, and that needs to change. Um, One of the pieces in terms of building supportive housing, I mean, everybody in this room knows that permanent and supportive housing is the answer. Um, But it takes time to build that and it takes dollars. But we do need to look at creative and innovative solutions until that happens. So looking at supportive housing from a scattered site supportive housing model, in terms of bringing wraparound supports Delivering rent supplements to people and supporting them in the homes that they have and the units that they get until we can build that full, you know, 24-7 supportive housing wraparound support. Um, creativity and innovation, something like we did at Herbs Road in the region of Waterloo, is part of, the, part of the reason why we should be looking at these solutions until we get to where we need to be.
1: Well, okay, this is a nice segue to take us then to solutions and creative ideas that are under consideration. And since you've got the floor, let me start with you. Uh, Your municipality gained a lot of attention over the last year on the issue of encampments and what to do about those. So, lay that out for us if you would. What was the problem? What did your region decide to do for a solution?
5: Yeah, um, and something that, I mean, I think we're all going through in terms of um, encampments. Uh, we see it a lot. We see some large encampments around the region of Waterloo. And from our municipal perspective, I mean, we are trying to support people in encampments the best that we can. From a municipal lens, the health and safety of people living in encampments obviously is um, is our first task. Uh, we have, a Regional Council has dedicated supports in-term housing solutions, tools in our toolbox, to support people that are living in encampments with our unsheltered outreach teams and our support teams to ensure that people are connected with supports and services that we need. We know that 33%, sometimes up to 50% of people living in encampments aren't even connected to financial supports. So we need to make sure that they know the supports that um, are out there for them to support. Um, We've looked at creative solutions, as you say, something like our tiny homes project uh, between the City of Waterloo and the Township of Wilmont. Uh, an amazing collaboration and partnership. Uh, 100% tax levy funding. I mean, the Region of Waterloo certainly put their money where their mouth was. Uh, 50 tiny homes as part of the solution. Um, we also have the Building Better Futures, where we are dedicated to building 2,500 homes in five years. We're almost at our goal, I think we're at 2,350. Many of those units are supportive housing units. So we are definitely going in the right direction in terms of solutions.
1: What's been the impact of all of that?
5: I mean, I think the impact has been great. Uh, At the four-month mark, we did an evaluation with the people that are living in the tiny homes at Herbs Road and what they have said to us, 70% said to us, this is a life-changing experience for them. And many of those 50 have been living unsheltered on the street anywhere between three and seven years. It is extremely difficult to recover from an experience of homelessness after 60 days, let alone anywhere between three and seven years. I mean, that's devastating for people. So they have found a sense of community. They have found a sense of safety. Being able to put your head on a pillow every night and lock up your belongings and not fear that you're gonna be robbed. Um, violence, everything that they experience, I think that speaks to quality of life and dignity, and these are the things that we're trying to do in the region of Waterloo. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
1: Catherine, is this an option in here on Perth?
4: It could be. I, what we've been doing is uh, using motels. And so we have, um, in Stratford, there's three motels. In Heron County, there's one motel that we're working with. And it has made a significant difference, particularly because people have somewhere 24-7 to be. We take services to the the hotels, uh, including our own services, our outreach staff, so mental health and addictions. We have paramedicine goes. We have a nurse practitioner that goes. And so we're taking the services to them. Uh, We also have connection centers um, that work with people who are homeless or unhoused. And so they have lots of different services as well, so people can go there and get document ready because sometimes that's a barrier for people as they don't have their ID uh, they can store some things there, et cetera, et cetera. but um, so that's been part of our solution and, and certainly there's been lots of t- talk about the t- tiny homes, and is that uh, you know something that we could move forward and I think sometimes the issue is being able to ensure that there's the supports there and the resources for those supports so i think there needs to be a conversation between you know health and the municipalities and and uh, provincial government around how do we ensure that if we're doing supportive housing or some of these uh, tiny homes or whatever how do we make sure that we have the supports uh, to be able to go in there
1: justin is this an option in the indigenous world
0: I, I, again, I, I think we, you know, I, I do get a little bit tired of hearing we need to be more creative, we need to be more innovative. Uh, if we're short four million homes, um, as a human species, regardless of culture, um, we know that people need shelter. It's one of the most basic human needs. And um, we can be creative and innovative all we want, but if we're not going to build appropriate housing for the people that need it, we're going to fail. Again, we're going to continue to fail. And, um, you know, it, again, I, I go back to, uh, to, to don't listen to us. If, if we need more social housing, if we need more deeply affordable uh, housing, then we need the federal government as a partner. Under our constitution, it's the federal government that has the most financial power. They have the ultimate taxation power and the ability to uh, to, to issue the bonds that are going to be required to raise the financial resources that are needed. Except the prime Korean.
1: minister reminded us not too long ago that housing is a provincial responsibility.
0: That might not have come out the way he wanted it to, but that's what he said. Well, I mean, I think he needs to reread his history books. Um, absolutely. Um, but it is, it, is a, it is an absolute, the, the national housing strategy is an absolute abject failure. Uh, you cannot start out 2.5 million homes short and call it a success if we're going to be 4 million homes short. We need the federal government's financial strength to address housing in a real way for people across every demographic.
1: What do you say about this issue of tiny homes and whether or not, actually speak to this angle of it, is there stigma attached to living in a tiny home?
2: Oh boy, could I talk about this for hours? <laughs> um, I started talking about tiny homes uh, in Lanark County about six or seven years ago now. Um, partially because I was looking into small housing and we were looking at developing a partnership with uh, Algonquin College because uh, we have a campus in Lanark County and we were gonna have students build houses. Um, so small homes in general. Tiny homes is kind of a term that's being used for anything right now that's uh, that's small. But small housing is not a new concept. Tiny homes are not a new concept. Uh, wartime Housing Limited built a million wartime strawberry box houses right across this country that have generations of people, um, and so we really have gotten away from small houses into big houses with this mantra that bigger is better for housing, and it's really not.
1: Just make sure we're all on the same page here. If you're talking about a small home or a tiny home, how many square feet are we talking?
2: Well, the province of Ontario, I believe, has changed their building code to acknowledge uh, tiny homes as 400 square feet and less. Um, and so so there's room for, room for movement in there. I think a lot of the emergency tiny home programs that we're seeing are actually uh, sleep cabins. So they're less than 110 square feet, I believe. Yep. Um, and so they're not approved through uh, building code. That, and as long as they don't have plumbing in them, um, you can, uh, with planning approval, can get them approved pretty quickly. Um, small houses up to 400 square feet, however, have to be approved through building code. Um, and so they're a little bit more complicated and we're not seeing as many of those as I'd like to see, quite frankly. Um, I've spoken other countries at conferences uh, from a national level and uh, folks in other countries are shocked by the sizes of our houses here in Canada. Um, They're monstrous compared to other countries. Um, And yet, you know, when I talk about tiny homes, uh, the nimbyism around small houses is terrible. And we as voters um, own that uh, in the sense that this whole idea of putting a small house beside a big house is going to lower your property value. So, um, you know, I'd love to see the adoption of tiny houses. I think. it's just a common sense model. I don't think it's a new model. Um, so we should get those on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Henry, same question to you. Stigma attached to tiny homes?
3: There, there is. And I think the, the terminology of, of small homes, that works. And what really works is when you have, when you complete the continuum of housing. And I think that's in part where, um, and you know, I think for all the, the negative that, that you've heard in terms of the challenges, I think, and part of the, the solutions to is what happens when um, communities start working together uh, as, as partners and in the absence of, of other levels of government support. Like if I could use the community of Red Lake as an example, uh, we went from having a homelessness crisis to now being a functional zero community uh, by the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness. And it wasn't any, any magic solution. It was a lot of hard work. Uh, building a new shelter, building uh, small transitional homes that could be almost classified as tiny homes, building supportive housing right from the get-go, partnering with our indigenous partners to create affordable family homes. And I think the the big piece in this too, and this is around the stigma is, and if I can be this blunt with with all of you uh, in the audience, some, you need to start trying things And for some solutions, you need to make sure your staff and your community partners that you have their back so that when nimbyism kicks in, you're not going to be swayed by what's posted on social media. And I think that is in part where, you know, in in Red Lake, uh, you know, mayor and council really stood fast in, in, in believing that this was the path forward, regardless of what the immediate was.
1: Can I ask you the follow-up question? Yeah. So So when they went back to the polls to try to get re-elected after they made that decision, what happened?
3: You should ask Mayor Moda. He's, he's in the audience here. <laughs> uh, it, it does work. And I think in part, it's fear of the unknown and the stigma that attaches to it. And when you have a good, as part of strategy, a good neighborhood engagement strategy, I don't talk about your, the, the rezoning process. We have big public meetings and that. What you need to have is intimate neighbor to neighbor conversation. That's how you change minds, you change hearts. And I'm not saying you're gonna get everybody on board, but in the community of Red Lake, that's how you go from having a homelessness crisis to having a functional zero uh, community. And I can tell you too, like, Uh, In another community, the city of Kenora, where where council went as far as part of their official plans to exempt the DSAB from having to uh, go through rezoning processes. And what that did is it didn't become a free-for-all, but it it actually, our energy can now be focused on solutions and not having defend what the solutions are. And so we just opened 20 small homes. I wouldn't call them quite tiny homes, but they're pretty darn close to it in the downtown. We have fully occupied, everybody has a job. The downtown did not go to hell in the handbasket as many people feared and it's actually improved what I would argue now the aesthetics in the downtown and there are now 20 people working in the downtown. So, small homes are affordable and it does work.
1: I I don't, somebody jump in on this one. We referenced Finland earlier. And apparently, you know, Finland has reduced homelessness by 90% is what we're told. you know how they did it?
5: Uh, yeah, actually I was reading, I was watching a conference that was happening in Ottawa just because I was really curious. I had heard a lot about it. Um, I don't know, it's like not comparing apples to oranges here. I mean they own 70%, Helsinki owns 70% of the land uh, in Finland. I think they, over, they have over six hundred, sixty thousand units of social and community housing and um, 600,000 affordable units. That's a lot. That's a lot of investment. And I think when you change, I think from the Helsinki's perspective, they said they sunk in, I converted it to Canadian, $250 million over four years um, investment to get them where they are today. So they haven't ended homelessness. They certainly have have you know, shorten the curve on that for sure. But they have a lot of um, resources at their disposal that we don't necessarily do currently at this time. But, you know, certainly some innovation and creativity over there. They bring people right from the streets, right into units immediately, shortening the time that people's experience of homelessness. And that's where the trauma starts. The longer people are on the street and the longer people live in shelter, um, the more resources that you need to wrap around and support people from their experience of homelessness.
1: Well, okay Terry Lee, let me push back on this a little bit in as much as they're a relatively small country. Uh-huh. We are a huge country. Uh-huh. They are a more densely populated country than we are. We have vast expanses. I don't have to tell people here vast expanses with very low population densities. They are a fairly homogeneous population. We are an extremely diverse population. Presumably that makes it I don't know, 100, 1,000 times harder for us to crack this nut?
2: Yeah, but they, they adopted policy like Housing First, which we can do in Canada and have done. There's some great examples of Housing First in this, in this country. Um, we just, the push and pull between the federal and provincial government often causes problems here because blaming each other back and forth for who owns what issue. But um, if we adopted Housing First widely in provincial and federal policy and committed the dollars to it, we could have the same impact here. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing that uh, Finland did as well, I just hosted a watch party for the folks that uh, mm-hmm. spoke in Ottawa. So um, the other thing that they did was they committed money to housing as opposed to shelters. So they acknowledge the shelters are the most expensive, least effective response to homelessness, and they invested the money into housing and avoided shelters as best they can. They still have some emergency housing. but um, So I think, you know, we've got some great models here. Um, here in Ontario, actually, Mike Lethby is uh, the CEO for the uh, RAF program in Niagara region, and he recognized, when we, if we bring it back to rural homelessness as well specifically, um, that, you know, 60 to 70% of the people coming into a shelter in the Niagara region were actually from the surrounding rural areas. Um, he had a shelter that was up to 30 beds at one point, and he decided that he was going to go out to the rural communities and provide services there. As a result of that, his shelter has now gone from 30 beds to 6 beds. Those... Because
1: they don't need the rest.
2: Housing first, supporting rural communities who are feeding shelters in the urban centers, um, addressing that migration issue works. So we've got tangible examples right here in this country, right here in this province. We just need to invest the dollars behind them to get it done.
0: Justin. Yeah, I'll I'll segue onto, uh, onto that last comment. Um, poverty and homelessness is extremely expensive. It's very expensive for society. And depending on which report you look at, uh, the cost of one person being homeless, homeless per year is anywhere from 90 to over $150,000 per year. So in terms of what Finland decided, they, they made the choice that this is not a very good use of, of resources to allow homelessness and poverty to continue. So what we're going to do is, yes, we have a housing first with supports philosophy, but what we're going to do is we're going to align the financial resources with the actual level of need. So until those two come together and until politicians make the choice that, you know what, we are going to invest in the financial resources to match the need, we're going to continue to be up here. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I've never, maybe somebody could jump in on this, I've never understood hospital emergency rooms must be among the most expensive public services that the province of Ontario provides. Mm -hmm. And yet there is the same, St. Michael's Hospital is very close to here. They've done the studies on this. It shows that it is the same roughly a few hundred, that's it, a few hundred homeless people who account for massive amounts of their budget, a hugely disproportionate amount of their budget. How can it not be more intelligent just to build homes for these people as opposed to have them end up in ER? where it costs 1,000 yeah. times as much. Yeah. Is it me? I don't get it. <laughs> Who's going to jump in on that?
3: Well, Henry, go. <laughs> <laughs> you're pro- we're probably the wrong audience to be asking that question, too. Might have to have a few other folks up here <laughs> to say what gives. Yeah. Um, but you're right, and I think you know, Justin, through, through our teams and in partnership uh, in Suluco demonstrated just that. What happens when 20 individuals who are chronically homeless are given a home uh, with culture-appropriate supports and services, what happens to policing costs, what happens to um, emergency room visits, and, uh, and what happens to life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through that, through that project, it was really for us, I mean, a, a no-brainer. We, we, we knew going in and we had to take quite a bit of risk going into it, but the payback's been tremendous. And so I think this is where there does need to be an alignment. Like homelessness, it, it's, it's a challenge for all of us every ministry, every level of government. I think that's what, that's what does need to happen. Otherwise, we will. We need to give our healthcare helpers and healers a reason to stay in the sector, and right now we're not mm-hmm. burning them out because we're just passing people around. Um, and there's, I'd, I'd mentioned in terms of lockups. I mean, in the community of Sioux Lookout last year, now it's, Sioux Lookout, it's a population of less than 6,000 people. There were over 3,800 lockups in that community. So now we're wondering why we can't get police officers, why we can't get nurses. It's, we're, we're burning them out in a very, very expensive way.
1: Okay. We are down to our last few minutes here. And what I'd like to do is just go down the line, give the people in this audience a reason for hope. What, what neat idea is out there, what good thing is happening out there that could allow people to take those ideas back to their communities and leave this room feeling somewhat hopeful about the way things could be? Justin, start, please. Sure.
0: Well, like you said, we've seen that uh, we've seen that a country can do this. We've seen that Finland has Finland has solved the has solved the problem, and I think there's hope. There's hope in that, in that sense that this is a solvable problem. Number one, uh, I, I think. Number two is that um, we're doing a better job of of getting the the message out, and when there are you know unsuspecting allies like. Uh, like one of our largest financial institutions that's calling on the federal government to double their investment in social housing. I think it's starting to hit home to policymakers and politicians that it really is much more expensive to ignore the situation than it is to properly deal with it from a financial and certainly from a human perspective. Catherine, do you?
4: I agree with Justin. I think people are understanding the financial impact of not doing anything about it. And I would say that we there's, there's so much awareness about it now that everyone is coming together and trying to figure it out. And I think this is the first time in a long time that we've had really strong relationships with our municipalities and other you know, partners, community partners, and health, et cetera. Who everyone's coming to the table to try and figure it out. Um, and I think we're seeing some good things as a result.
3: Henry. Yeah. I- I think the sheer fact that we have this many people in the audience, that we're actually talking about as, as collective, we're talking about as community leaders, community partners, and that's something we should all be proud of. I think that that is a start to a, to a good path. As I mentioned with the community, like, it is possible working together. It's it's a lot of hard work, and the strategy lasts more than just one term of council, or one term of an uh, election cycle. So have us plan and stick to it. It is possible. And I'd say the other piece, too, and this is where as, as rural communities. I've heard this say, like, rural communities don't win elections. But I can t- want to tell you this. I think you can certainly help lose elections. And I think it's, it's in part, we need to recognize that for all that you can do at a local level, you do need to have levels of government as partners. And we need to move away from lottery system granting systems. You, need, you, you have the ideas and the strategy. You just need the resources to, to make it happen. And I think that's in part where, and there are almost 400 of you that's an incredible number, so I think taking this and, 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 and speaking a little louder outside of this room, I think that's something I'm also hopeful for, is that you're starting to unite, and that's how we're going to do it. I think that's how we're going to get governance back at the table, to be partners, and we're going end homelessness.
1: Kellyanne.
5: Um, probably, I think, for me, the one word that comes is courage. I see municipalities and many people in this sector and in this room starting to look at the way that systems have been for hundreds of years and peeling that layer of that onion back to say, maybe we shouldn't be doing things this way. Starting to address the gaps and starting to have the voices at the table that for so many years haven't been there. The voice of lived expertise and lived experts sitting at the table telling us and educating us around how we can better serve our communities. You know, for us on the plan to end chronic homelessness, the key to that is in community, by community, for community. We need to listen more, and I think from a hope and courage perspective, we certainly are doing that now. Mm. Really?
2: Uh, when I created the National Alliance on Rural Ballet Homelessness with uh, Tim Richter with the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness about five, six years ago, I literally was still convincing elected officials that we had a problem in rural areas with homelessness. Um, and I find that has changed dramatically in the last few years. I think now there's an acceptance that rural homelessness is a serious issue that we need to address. So we need to leverage that will now. I think the will is there to address uh, housing and homelessness. Um, Let me correct that. I think there's a will there to address housing. Now we need to build the will to address homelessness, which requires a commitment to housing first, and that requires money. So we need to turn this will into money.
1: (laughs) Most of the folks in this room say they don't have the money to do all the things they want. So where are the solutions there?
2: Well, again, I think the the whole argument around Finland and their commitment to recognize that it actually costs more money to leave people homeless. Mm -hmm. It's a common sense model. I mean, our math is way off right now. We're spending money on the least effective, worst responses to homelessness when we could actually be saving money by actually housing people and wrapping them in support. So, do it.
1: So much good and smart advice here. I know this audience wants to join me in thanking this group for coming to Roma today and sharing their views with us. Thank you all very much. It was terrific. Thank you.